Blog Talk Radio. You're listening to Starseed Radio Academy, empowering Starseed to better serve the planet. Welcome to Starseed Radio Academy. It's Tuesday, May 9th, 2023, and I'm your host, Arielle Taylor, with my co-hosts for the evening, Lavendar and Anastasia. We will be going to Arkansas for our Pleiadian lineup quest next week, so our next show will be in three weeks on May 30th. Pleiadian lineup starts on the 15th and goes until the 18th this year, and good news, Mercury goes direct on the 14th, so just a few more days. We are continuing our celebration of the 14th anniversary of Starseed Hotline coming online in April of 2009, and then the 13th anniversary of this show, Starseed Radio Academy, which first aired on March 20th, 2010. It was in our first two years of this show that Lavendar released a lot of the information from her vault as she had been directed to wait until after Giant Rock in California cracked in two before she could publish or talk about it publicly. Now, with over 500 episodes in our archives, many people have yet to listen to those first chapters. The Seedling, Parts 1 and 2, which we aired on our last two shows, goes back to before the beginning of Lavendar's life on planet Earth. This formed the foundation of her life, the beginnings of her awakening, the wild things that happened around her, and how she coped. Remember, this took place in the 60s and 70s when no one was talking about starseeds, walk-ins, or metaphysics. Plus, it took place in Oklahoma, in the heart of the Bible Belt. In this episode, we are continuing with the next chapter, Catalina and Natalie Wood, which is part of her book entitled Crack Between the Worlds, which is essentially Lavendar's autobiographical chronicle of how the ETs function. We want to thank all the star seeds from every corner of the globe who have found their way to our site and Lavendar's work over the past 14 years and counting. And our website is starseedhotline.com. And at the top of the show, it's Anastasia's Starseed News, bringing topics of interest and hope to starseeds. And I think I'm just going to introduce Anastasia as soon as I can find her on the switchboard. Okay, there you are. Good evening, Anastasia. Oh, hi, Ariel. Could you hear me okay? Sure. Oh, good, good. I wasn't sure whether it was working or not. I was fiddling around with the switches. <laughs> so anyway, thank you for the applause. I'm sorry, I'm just a little bit slow here. Technicalities. I'd be glad when Mercury goes direct. Thank goodness. You and me, you and me both. Ah, dear. Well, you're talking about 14 years. Has it really been that long? My goodness sakes. Wow. Yeah. Well. Hard to believe we sometimes. Some, yeah, it is hard to believe. It really is. But, you know, when you look at the world how things have changed just in that short period of time. Things, Time is really speeding up. I have a question for you, Arielle. Are any of your people, clients, um, talking to you about how fast time is moving? Oh, Can yeah. anybody else talk about that? Yeah. It's like every uh, time I turn around, another week is gone. Oh, 
It's unbelievable. Yeah, I mean, it's like uh, we can't go fast enough to keep up with the rapidity of things. I'm assert, I think that's causing a lot of stress. So anyway, 14 years, it, it, you know, it just, it's just gone by in just a blink. So that's the way it is. But I want to get to the news. I need to get to the news. I could chat with you all night, but <laughs> we'll get to the news. Um, this is this is a great thing. Well, we're going to be coming up on the 4th of July before too terribly long. It's just around the corner, and fireworks can be, well, they're pretty and all that. But, you know, I'm sort of environmentally minded, as I think many of you are, and I, I think about the animals. I think about uh, the smoke. I think about the waste. I think about toxins. I think about lots of things. I guess I'm just a small sport. But anyway. I've often wondered uh, about the noise and the effect on animals, and I found out when I'm researching the news for tonight that that is not just my concern. A town in Italy has been concerned enough about it that they have switched to something called silent fireworks. Why not? (laughs) Fireworks are always a part of celebrations of all kinds, not just the 4th of July, and human beings love these displays. People love this stuff. It's beautiful. But indeed, animals can suffer from loud noises, including uh, human beings, too. And in the United States and Italy, pets and other animals will experience heart problems, nausea, tremors, fear, and stress. My cats used to just be shaking with the fireworks we had. The dogs, too. Uh, They are affected by fireworks, and they have more sensitive hearing. And they pick up on that, and the explosions cause them acoustic stress, something they call acoustic stress. Stress from noise. Well, during these displays, animals get confused. They can get scared, um, disoriented. All kinds of things can happen. And so this little town in Italy has decided to do something about it. Now, this didn't come uh, out, of, out of the thin air because uh, there's a company in this town. And by the way, the town in Italy is called, let's see, Coleccio. Coleccio, I think I said that right. It's located in the province of Parma. Uh, the local government, along with a local company, okay, that developed fireworks that produced the spectacular light show uh, without the explosion sounds, uh, is, is existing in that little town. They have the, a business there. They worked with their government uh, to <laughs> business deal maybe. But nevertheless, the local town has purchased these fireworks. The local company is develop, developing them for all over the world. And these are silent fireworks that uh, give this stunning display without causing any distress to animals or even high-strung people such as myself. (laughs) This actually is a revolutionary action that could serve as an example for communities all across the U.S. and around the world, showing deference to the welfare of animals, the environment, and humans alike. You know, there's been studies on stressors on human beings in today's world. Uh, People are stressed terribly, and a lot of it is noise pollution. Uh, people complain about motorcycles and uh, uh, lawnmowers and leaf blowers and, oh, you name it, everything. Uh, it's a very noisy world we, we live in, and sometimes those extra stressors like fireworks and big booms and things like that, uh, people just crave quiet. So this is really a nice thing, uh, silent fireworks. Now, I suppose a lot of people aren't going to like that, but anyway, there it is. I think it's it's a good thing shows how creative people can be. Okay. Did you know that the Philadelphia, uh, a report commissioned by the city of Philadelphia, has revealed that the, their ban on single-use plastic bags, I don't expect you to remember this. I covered this story some time back. Uh, 
they put a ban on single-use plastic bags that went into effect on July of 2021. We, we talked about that. Well, that has prevented the use of 200 million plastic bags. Wow. Now, this wow. ban applies to paper bags not made from at least 40% recycled materials as well as plastic, and it carries a penalty of $150 or more per violation for retailers. Well, this study was conducted by researchers from the University of Pittsburgh and Swarthmore College, found that while the use of paper and reusable bags had increased, overall the number of disposable bags had dropped significantly. Environmental advocates have praised this ban, with other municipalities in Pennsylvania are following their lead and implementing similar measures. One town, 200 million plastic bags in, what, two years? Not quite two years. One town. Wow. Wow, is right. Okay, here's a story out of Berkeley, California. Berkeley used to be such a fun place. I mean, come on, Berkeley, California. Well, in Berkeley, uh, there's a story about a restaurant. Now, classic American diners... uh, course make money serving up meals for a fair price but there's one establishment in berkeley that has built its business giving away food for free it started a few years ago when the owner of the homemade cafe in southwest berkeley decided to do something rather unusual offer anyone who is hungry a free breakfast no questions asked He said we would have people who would come by and they'd usually panhandle or ask customers for extra food. And my reaction was, hey, if you guys are hungry or need a food, we'll feed you. Well, when the pandemic hit and the food insecurity across the country exploded, the need grew so much that Duran, this man, decided to make his unusual policy official. And he called it the Everybody Eats program. Well, the owner serves free meals to the hungry and to the homeless. He said the typical everybody-eats meal is a basic two-eggs breakfast, two eggs cooked however the customer likes it. You get your side of a delicious home fries and toast. Now, to qualify, one needs to just grab a coupon from the diner bulletin board and find a seat. And the only payment required is a thank you. One of the neighborhood residents has been relying on food assistance programs to get by. She said being able to eat at the cafe free of charge is a godsend said, I have to budget. Prices are going up. Everything's more expensive. I have to find the people that can help out with little things financially. And this is obviously something that helps me immensely. Isn't that amazing? Isn't this man amazing, she said? Yeah. Well, paying customers can help by adding $5 to their bill, something many of his regulars are more than happy to do. One of them said, this just touches my heart. I really believe this is a part of human respect. Well, this program has become so popular, he's now giving away about 200 meals a month. He said, there was a small concern in the back of my mind that, well, if it got well known, it would be difficult to deal with a high volume of meals or keep up with everything. But I figured if I'm going to get myself into trouble, I'm going to get into good trouble. So <laughs> not only did he get into good trouble, but his business grew by 15%. That's a significant increase for any restaurant, particularly in this day and age. He said customers have reacted so positively. They're contributing. They're helping us. And even if they don't always contribute, they like the fact that we do it and they choose to come here more often. The man is hoping other businesses will do exactly what he's doing. 
He said doing it in a way that is socially responsible and trying to make the world a little better place is something we can all do and we can do it together. That's wow, wonderful. that's awesome. If everybody did that, oh. All right, well, I don't know about you guys, but as I look back into my childhood, I suppose there are some of you starseeds that were so brilliant and perfect, and you loved school, right? Well, I wasn't one of those kids that really loved school. In fact, most of my friends didn't love school at all. Smart enough, mind you, but just did not love school. Well, as I read this article in in anticipation of sharing this with you tonight, I I thought about what this writer says and, and these people that have come up with an idea. And they're now implementing it, particularly in Germany, uh, that uh, class, classroom uh, work for happiness, uh, to make children happy, and for children to be aware of what happiness is and how to have it. Let me tell you. Uh, the children at an elementary school in Germany are planting right now something they call a garden of emotions. And one by one, the children step up to the front of their class. In their hand, they hold a yellow or orange paper flower on which they have written what made them joyful in this very morning. Children write things like, I got to snuggle with my dog. I found a coin on the street, one boy wrote. Another one said, my dad cuddled with me this morning. These kids are collecting small and big moments of happiness, both literally and figuratively. Now, science shows that savoring moments of happiness actually makes us happier. Elementary schools in the small town have been holding the happiness course once a week. And actually, the needs are urgent. An international study shows a drastic increase in depression, anxiety, and persistent frustration among youth compared to the pre-pandemic times in 2019 and before. Schools and universities are responding to the mental health crisis by implementing stress relief and mental well-being programs. The question is, what is happiness? Can and should it be taught at school? Well, the course developer says that he has been obsessed with making school better since he was a kid like me and asks, why can't we get at least 80% of the students to say, I love going to school? Well, that got my attention personally because I thought, yeah, wouldn't it be great to say, kids say, I love going to school? Well, the researcher tries to explain the neurobiological science behind the curriculum for teachers and their students that teaches how the brain works and why it makes sense to focus on joyful things. And as an example, as a teaching tool, children learn by crafting paper planes that the paper creases deepen the more often they fold the paper. Similarly, one strengthens neurobiological pathways by focusing on positive emotions. The more you fold a crease, the deeper it gets. The more you focus on joy and positive emotions, the more joyful and positive you can become. Very simple and very true. Family, pets, friends, and hobbies are the happiness factors kids mention most often. Think about that. Family, pets, friends, and hobbies. They also regularly talk about their grandparents, whereas material goods hardly play any role at all. A computer game might be mentioned, but very rarely. In India, a million students learn happiness in school, and even the Dalai Lama visited some of their classes. And in Bavaria, middle schools have experimented with happiness classes since 2013. 
Young participants report that they have discovered increased well-being and self-confidence. Teachers note, note less conflict in school, which is very important, and the students say that they are learning more easily. A recent 30-minute online training involving more than 4,000 students at the University of Texas showed a particularly robust response. The teachers are profiting from the classes. They say that the teachers themselves are learning to be happy by learning how to help their children be happy. So one of the teachers has crafted a gratitude necklace that he teaches the kids to make at school. They write their gratitudes on paper slips. Um, They uh, string it on, on string and carry it around their necks. And they've also trained the children to do this. So you might be able to implement this for a child in your life. They get the kids a yellow backpack. They call it the Backpack for Life. And they pack that with all the things that make them happy. They carry that around with them. And they're encouraged to reflect on questions like, what was good today? What am I grateful for? Then they either write it on paper or craft a picture of what makes them happy. And they fill their backpack over the course of several months. This leads them to noticing more of what brings them happiness. This automatically affects teachers and parents, too, because everybody is doing exercises with the kids. Now, what the teachers are especially happy about is that the thing that topped the kids' list of things they're grateful for, the happiness classes. (laughs) 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 Of course. All right. Well, there's a man named Christian who has Down syndrome, but he likes to do all the stuff normal guys like to do. He likes to go bowling, and he likes to play video games. Now, making friends wasn't very hard for this young man with Down syndrome. He's 24 years old now. Until he finished school, got off on his own, you know, got away from school, and found as many people uh, without Down syndrome, fine for that matter. It's not easy and straightforward to maintain a social life. It's difficult. Well, his mother watched her son sink further and further into the dumps because he didn't have any friends to visit with him or talk with him. This isolation is really a problem for everyone. It's really it's really awful. It's one of the worst parts of our society. It didn't just start with the pandemic. Lots of things have caused this. And so people are it's really damaging people. So anyway, the mother uh, put a post on Facebook asking if any of the local guys near their house would be interested in coming to hang out with Christian for a couple hours, and it was a service for which she was willing to pay $80 in compensation. As this mother is a nurse on the night shift, and she put the post up at seven, excuse me, 4 o'clock in the morning before ending her day and going to sleep. But when she woke up, to her utter shock, her post had amassed 5,000 comments. Can you believe that? She said, I was freaking out. My hands were shaking. I was just looking for some local people. I didn't want to invite the entire world into my house. (laughs) Well, her friends encouraged her to calm down, take a closer look at the comments, and then she found parents offering suggestions and many people volunteering to help. She eventually found or vetted seven guys from her town, around her town, who visit her son once a week on a rotating schedule. She said her son goes to sleep with a smile on his face because he's excited about life in general and the future as well. Somebody to care about you, somebody to share your life with, somebody to talk to. 
oh, these small, wonderful things that people used to take for granted now so very, very precious. And aside from average people, everybody, friendships are especially important for people born with Down syndrome. Associations urge parents to plan for the eventuality of their child leaving school and needing to take another approach towards socializing. So um, one of the friends uh, that is volunteering with this young man said he feels terrible that the mother had to reach the point where she tried to pay people to visit her son. This volunteer regularly attends to special needs folks. He said hanging out for just a few hours to watch a movie or play a video with Christian has changed the way he, he looks at the world that he's the one who benefits. He says, you don't have to pay me to do this. I am learning and growing and experiencing a beautiful thing here. Uh-huh. So, wow. You know, if people are given half a chance in this world to bring out their beautiful sides, their aspects, you know, their souls, they'll do it. We just need more more activities more people uh, doing this on their own. You can't expect society to do it for you because we are society. We form society. And nobody out there is going to lead the way. We have to lead the way, and then we lead society forward. You and I, we're the ones that change things and that make a better world. It doesn't happen without us. Okay, here's a cute story. It's actually pretty amazing. It has to do with animals. Almost unbelievable, really. But there's a moral to it, and I'm telling you it's a true story. A warthog a hyena, a porcupine, walk into a burrow. I think I'm going to tell you a bad joke, right? (laughs) It's not the setup for a bad joke. It's an abstract in a scientific paper that's been published in the African Journal of Ecology uh, who discovered that a warthog, a hyena, and a porcupine walked into a hole and decided to live together. Now, that's unheard of. Now, these holes are, conf- are confined. They're cramped. It's a dugout den. It's flush with quills, teeth, and tusks. And it's a rental agreement between animals that normally cannot stand each other. And they're living together in harmony. Well, scientists who discovered this novel phenomenon while observing camera traps outside hyena dens in a wildlife preserve in Kenya suggested it was, in fact, a healthy respect for the threats presented by their mutually formidable weaponry. What does that mean? Uh, They all have um, strong protective mechanisms. Porcupine's pretty obvious, the quills. Uh, The hyena has teeth, and the warthog has tusks. So... When it is discovered that when predators uh, match equal uh, predators, when they face off, uh, the equality tends to disarm or uh, diffuse uh, possible conflict. Well, anyway, moving on. They say that den sharing has been done before among porcupines, pine martens, foxes, and badgers in Italy in 2019. But this is the first time it's ever been seen in African animals, in particularly animals that have all of these sort of... um, uh, you know, dangerous attachments to them uh, can hurt each other just by bumping into each other. Uh, in one of the hollows, they found up to seven hyenas, three warthogs, two porcupines, and in another, 11 hyenas, six warthogs, and two porcupines. These animals shared that same space for months. 
They would sometimes go in and out of the boroughs within minutes of each other. Uh, they appeared to do this on a timeshare basis. Some of them would go out uh, and yeah, while the others were due to sleep. They seemed to, like, rotate the borough uh, according to their sleep schedules because they had different sleep schedules. So they suspect that maybe underground the animals had dug separate chambers, so they kind of have little apartment spaces. <laughs> they didn't actually sleep in the same hole, but they don't really know for sure. They said that it also could have been a, um, a response to the very dry, hard earth, that they didn't want to exhaust themselves digging more burrows than they had to, so they decided to share one burrow to save the rest of them the energy of digging the dirt out. But you see, these are scientists all trying to figure this out. Nobody really knows, except that it is uh, maybe a message. I think the indigenous tribes would find some wonderful lessons in that for all of us. I think they would tell us there's a teaching in that. Human beings, you know, we kind of miss the point entirely. We want to scientifically examine this and think about all the ways why our, you know, with our brains, what we think is going on here, but actually it's pretty darn miraculous, and um, it, it's a message. So when we start arguing with our neighbors or we get mad at somebody, a little bit of road rage going on, or we think we can't stand the people at work or whatever, don't like our neighbors, don't like anybody, who knows, Think about the hyenas, the porcupines, and the warthogs. When you can't stand, you think you just can't stand to be around any more people. Well, it's all possible. We all, once the collective begins to work together for the common good, that's really what it's all about on this planet. We're all here together for the common good. And these wonderful little African animals just gave everybody a lesson, and even though many people miss the point, I think it's a really <laughs> amazing Nature is standing up and teaching us something. All right, I'm sharing this this uh, with you because it has, I think, interest um, to those that sort of study religion, those that study metaphysics deeply. Um, There's a bit of discovery in archaeology that has some historical significance, possibly. A 2,000-year-old Buddha statue has turned up at an ancient Egyptian dig. What's that doing there? When the ancient Egyptians were still leaving offerings to Amnon in their temples, a face from more than 4,000 miles away was already turning up at the docks of the pharaohs. Hindu religion in in Egypt. A 28-inch long statue of Buddha was found in excavations of the Egyptian port of Berenice on the Red Sea, dating back to the Roman era. The statue depicts Buddha with a halo around his head and holding a lotus flower in his hand. And by the way, if anybody wonders what Anastasia thinks it looks like, to me it looks just like the Statue of Liberty. (laughs) Seriously, the head halo looks just like the Liberty crown. Anyway, moving on. Uh, What this article tells us is that ships laden with goods from India and offshore islands were even at this early stage of history capable and actually doing it crossing the Indian Ocean routinely on trading missions, bringing spices, jewels, and their religions with them, their teachings, their spiritual discussions, their secrets. The find holds important indications over the presence of trade ties between Egypt and India during the Roman era. Indeed, even the Middle East, Palestine, ancient Israel, and India Known as the Maritime Silk Road, the shipping lanes of the Indian Ocean were plied for thousands of years, 
connecting the wealth of China to that of India and the Spice Islands to the Arab world and North Africa through to Constantinople and Europe beyond. Well, many people have wondered over time, these free thinkers, not necessarily conventional religious people, but metaphysicians have wondered about the man known as Jesus and where he went during his missing years, and some have postulated that he went to India, and the naysayers have said over many years that's not possible, there's no evidence of that. Well, there you go. There you go. People from the Middle East went to India, and people from India went to the Middle East. Ah, there there you have it. Fascinating. Ah, there's so many mysteries in the world. Well, let's see here. I think probably that's all I'll share with you tonight. A lot of these are, what I have left are too long and very scientific, so I'll work on these a little bit and share them with you next time. Some of these science articles, Ariel, are so complicated. <laughs> I know you go to sleep when I tell you about them. So if I do extensive trimming of them, I can kind of present a, a paragraph of information that you might find beneficial, and I'll do that for you next week. I'll, I'll let you go. I'll end it there. Oh, I love you all so very much. I want you all to have a beautiful few weeks. I guess I'll see you in three weeks, Ariel. And, right, on the 30th. Uh, thank you so much for having me here. You have a good night. Well, it's always a pleasure, and I love those stories tonight. Um, it really gives you pause for you know, contemplation and thinking that you know, anybody can make a difference regardless of how small. Oh, yeah. You know, Ariel, there are so many miracles happening in us, through us, around us. Oh, we just could get the idea of the unlimited potentialities. It starts with the basics. You know, you really have to you have to knuckle down and do your work and don't get too big-minded about things. But keep that in your heart. Keep that, that knowing in your heart, the truth in your heart about possibilities, potentialities, about, you know, pure love and stepping out to fill the needs and I tell you that things are going to open up it is we let we are walking among miracles now we don't we look out at the world what we see daily every day we don't see that we see a lot worse terrible things but that's not that's not the truth of it the truth of it's in our hearts and what we know inside and how much we can give ah it's a wonderful time to be alive it really is all right I'm done I'll be quiet now (laughs) I'll see you guys in in three weeks (laughs) Good night Okay Thanks so much Anastasia Okay So uh, tonight we have our um, Third and final chapter For our anniversary show And if you um, If you didn't hear the last two shows You might want to go back And and catch those um, As well as our featured episode crack between the worlds because they're all interwoven and these are from Lavendar's journals that she has been keeping for well since the 70s early 80s so tonight we have the chapter about uh, Catalina and Natalie Wood I returned to Giant Rock many times after that mysterious February 7, 1977 trip. If you haven't heard the long version of Crack Between the Worlds episode, maybe you need to go back and listen to it so it'll be in context with the rest of this story. At least, you know, I was down at Giant Rock maybe 
or once a week for months. I was included in discussions about the Integraton. Then the government came and told George to stop allowing people to go inside. They actually had agents that stayed on top of the hill with binoculars monitoring George, Doris, and everyone that came to visit them. Everybody that showed up, well, they got on a list to be observed for later. I think that shutting down the Integraton was one of the reasons George decided to leave the planet. The people in the consciousness of 1977 couldn't accept what this machine was truly about. One of the things I remembered the most is the day George took me to Giant Rock and pointed at it and said, you know, one day Giant Rock's going to crack, and when it does, you're going to have to release this information. And I said, what information? And at that point, something came over him, and that's when I got the information. I'll discuss more of that later, or you can go back and hear that in Crack Between the Worlds. Things that were so beyond my comprehension, the truth about walk-ins, time travel, rejuvenation, cloning, just all of it. It was almost like he was on a speed dial. Then he would see when I was overloading, and we'd just walk for a while before continuing. I need to tell a story here, although it's out of order of things and events, but this is the place I need to tell it because it's very important to this story. I'll jump ahead a few years. In 1981, I was in direct contact with my spaceship Star of Bethlehem. Thurman Myers, the man I was with at the time, well, we left Las Vegas and we were on our way to New Mexico. I began hearing a communication from the ship. We were directed to stop and go by Sedona into Oak Creek Canyon. I was, to I was told to find a little cabin to rent because I needed a quiet place to write and work and continue these ET demonstrations. We were driving up and down this road looking for a place to rent when all of a sudden, in front of some cabins that were closed for the season, there stood George Van Tassel on the side of the road. He was just standing there grinning. Thurman saw him, and then I saw him, and I yelled, Well, that's George! George Van Tassel, turn around, now! He turned around, and of course George wasn't there anymore. But he had been standing in front of a sign of this place that said, Closed. I said, This is the place, we're going to rent it. I think the name it was the Chipmunk Inn or something like that. Thurman said, You're not going to rent this place, it's shut down. I told him that we had to find the owner and make a deal, which we did, and we rented the cabin for three months. We both had seen George, but what was so ironic about this is that it was 1981 and George had died in February of 78. During those months, I journaled many, many transmissions that I was receiving from the ship. What I came to find out from some of these galactic gems of wisdom is that since the very moment I was born, I've been monitored and I've been guided by the Star of Bethlehem, my ship. My whole life experience is and has been an experiment that I myself was part of planning before I was born. I was chosen for this experiment because of who I'd been and what I had become through my evolution. I simply had to walk the walk, talk the talk, and live right through it. And that's what I came to know. On New Year's Eve of 1978, Gina Bilodeau, Jeanette Browning, and I went to see a movie called The Turning Point with Shirley MacLaine and Anne Bancroft. 
I remembered seeing Shirley on the screen, and I felt like I knew her. It was like somebody was giving me signals about her. There was an extraordinary feeling I had, and after seeing her on screen, I started fl having flashes about her. These flashes were indications of her future metaphysical interest and concern about UFOs. The information that, that I was receiving was being directed from above. I was being prepared for the future of my association with her. Remember that she was part of the Rack Pack with Sinatra, as she was the female member. But I actually wouldn't get to meet her uh, in person until later in the early 80s. I'd like to refer now to a time that happened in Oklahoma City in September of 78. I decided to have some rebirthing sessions with a lady named Polly Estep. I had gone to the bookstore and picked up a book about Nostradamus. And I was waiting for her to show up. I was sitting on her doorstep, and I was thumbing through this book. And all of a sudden, I had this experience. About this time, Pope Paul VI had died, and they had appointed a new pope, John Paul I, sitting there. I just got tuned in, and I knew that this pope was going to be killed, and I got very agitated. I don't know if it had anything to do with Nostradamus or not, but when Polly showed up, I just couldn't have a session. I had to get in my car and just drive home. Within two days, Pope Paul I was dead. The official story of John Paul's sudden death, who served only 33 days as Pope, was caused by, they say, a common heart attack. However, a degree of uncertainty accompanied this diagnosis because there was never an autopsy performed. The discrepancies in the Vatican account of the events surrounding John Paul's death, its inaccurate statements about who found the body, what he'd been reading, what he'd found in the vault, everything about it was suspicious. There were so many conspiracies going on at that time about the Vatican Bank and who owned the shares of money. Even fiction focused on the bizarre death of the Pope. The movie The Godfather Part Three featured a major plot line depicting the Vatican Bank involved in organized crime, with various intrigues resulting in the assassination of a pope, openly named in the movie as John Paul I. And there's so many theories about the CIA assassination attempt due to John Paul I being perceived as trying to improve ties with the Soviet Union in his removal of several pro-American clergy. We'll probably never know for sure whether or not Pope John Paul I was killed, but I tend to believe the information that I was receiving from the ship at the time. Things seemed to be accelerating for me in 1978. I met Thurman Myers, my new man, who I'd be with for 10 years. I took him to Giant Rock to meet Doris. As I had mentioned earlier, George had died in February, and after that trip I became very sick. My colon was messed up with polyps, and I was burned out and tired. I was hardly working at my business anymore. I did have three clients who worked at the MGM Grand Hotel and Casino. I kept seeing a fire at the MGM Grand and people dying. I told my three clients that if, I, if they didn't change jobs, they could die in a fire. They didn't listen, and when the fire happened, they died. That was the straw that broke the camel's back. I quit. I was not doing readings anymore. You know, many years later, I was involved in a, a product that we um, all went to Las Vegas to try to get put together through a company called Beyond Sea, and I got to meet 
uh, a man who had been in charge of um, the MGM and if he had made certain decisions that fire never would have happened. I actually got to work with him and and we talked about the fire and I helped him with the transmutation of his guilt. So that was many years later. So back to my trip to Sarasota, Florida. That's where I went to recover from my burnout. Thurman went to Indonesia and left me there in Sarasota by myself. My mother came to stay with me while he was gone and during her visit I started having incredible pains in my stomach area. She called an ambulance and I was rushed to the hospital where they thought that I had a kidney stone. I'd already been told, and not by doctors, but by them, <laughs> that I should not have sodium pentothal. When I told the doctors that I couldn't have sodium pentothal, they asked me why. And I said, because I'm a UFO contactee. They thought I was a nutcase. They wheeled me into the operating room where they were going to extract what they thought was a kidney stone. Mm -hmm. Ironically, one of the nurses in the operating room with me was the sister of my hairdresser. She told me later that when they administered the anesthesia, and she didn't know whether it was pentothal or not, that my heart stopped. She said that they were about to put the fibrillator paddle on me to revive me when a blue light filled the room and a voice said, Don't touch her. They started backing away as bizarreness had entered the room and everyone fled to huddle in the hall to regroup. When they returned, my heart had started beating again and they proceeded to remove something they couldn't identify as it was not a kidney stone. I'm sure now that it was an implant of some kind. When I woke up in recovery, there were these three men in black at the foot of my bed asking me questions. I later found out that this doctor had had an affair with a woman involved in UFO phenomena who was trying to get a half a million dollars out of him. It, sta it started to make more sense why he was acting this way when he told my mother back in the room that I needed psychiatric help. The doctor wrote these prescriptions and handed them to the nurse to call in. She gave the paper back to my mother afterwards, so I got to keep them to see exactly what they were. When I started taking the pills, they wigged me out. They were actually making me crazy. I got into a fight with my mother, who left in tears and flew home. But when she got home, she got her medical book out, read up on these drugs, and called me. She told me to stop taking the stuff. She read that when you take these drugs together, they do create psychotic episodes, and you can go crazy. She saved my life from this demon doctor who was trying to kill me, or at least make me literally crazy. In December of 1979, Thurman asked me where I wanted to go for my birthday, and I told him that I wanted to go to Aruba. We went to Aruba where I enjoyed it very much. I would eventually live there for a while, but more on that later. By January of 1980, I was in Cripple Creek, Colorado, looking at an A-frame house that Thurman had bought for us. We still had the place in Sarasota, so I flew back and forth from Cripple Creek to Sarasota from time to time. I could only stay about three weeks at a time in Cripple Creek because of the altitude. I was in Sarasota when my father decided to come to visit. I was driving uh, to the airport to pick him up in my Lincoln convertible. I was crossing the Sarasota Bridge when I saw a single cloud in the sky. About the time I saw the cloud, lightning came out of it and struck the bridge. It bounced off the bridge and hit me in the car. I was driving this Lincoln convertible with the top down. Anyway, I stopped the car 
and heard the man behind me slap on his brakes, and I heard the sound of cars running into each other, one after another. They didn't hit me, but I was sitting behind the wheel with my fingers clamped on the steering wheel. The man, who was behind me, ran up to my car, asked if I wanted to go to the hospital, and I said, Oh no, I have to pick up my daddy from the airport. I have to see my daddy. I just gunned the car speeded toward the airport, which was a couple of miles away. I remembered looking back in the rearview mirror, wondering what people were thinking and what were they going to tell the police when they arrived. I decided not to be there for any of it. When my dad got off the plane, he'd been drinking. I tried to explain to him what had happened to me, but he didn't care. He was totally unconcerned. All he wanted to know is if I had any girlfriends he could meet and to party with. Who was this man? I had never seen such behavior coming from him. I was glad to put him back on the plane after a week from Daddy from Hell. Thurman came back from Indonesia and he started treating me really bad. I wondered what I was doing to deserve this terrible treatment. To counteract the treatment that I was receiving from Thurman, I decided I was going to help him. By helping him, I would help myself and do the things that I needed to accomplish. Besides, I had the ship with me and my Galactic Secret Service. We went through several experiences where he saw the kind of galactic powers that were standing and walking with me. He really snapped one day when we got on a train in Albuquerque. I didn't want to get on the train. I felt like that something really bad was going to happen. But he made me get on it anyway. We went to the club car and he started drinking. Thurman got into a fight with the bartender who had been on this train for years. In fact, the bartender was on his way to Chicago where he was actually retiring at the end of the trip. This was, of course, his last trip. Anyway, security had to come and put Thurman in, in our bunk where I started undressing him. As I was taking his clothes off, I started hearing a voice that said, In the wheels! In the wheels! In the wheels! I thought, my God, I've got to get off this train, and I'm just going to leave Thurman on it. I'm getting off. I was so disgusted with him. I asked the conductor where the next stop was, and he told me that it was Dodge City, Kansas. When the train stopped, I had my bags in my hand ready to depart. As I stepped off the train, I heard this voice say, Get Thurman off the train. You can't leave him here. I said, I don't want him. And a voice said, take him off the train. The, the voice kept yelling at me. So the help of this energy, we dressed him and got him off the train. He was a very big man. So it was really, I don't know how I got him dressed and, and off the train. So there we were, standing at the station at midnight. Thurman was drunk, no cabs, no one around, and I didn't know where we were going to go. Then out of the blue, this man pulled up and asked if we needed a ride someplace, and I asked if he could take us to a motel. The man found us a motel, and we thanked him. I've often wondered who that man really was. The next morning when we got up, something something just said, Turn on that TV. And on the news was a story about the train that we'd been on crashing in Lawrence, Kansas, and killing all those people in the Pullman where we'd been sleeping. It was completely demolished. And the bartender, he was killed on his last shift. Thurman looked at me, and he snapped big time. I really didn't have much trouble with Thurman and his drinking after that. It was a turning point, because then 
I guess, well, he felt like he owed his life to me. For two years after that, though, a galactic female, an extraterrestrial energy, came and worked with him through me. There was another episode where a man tried to come into our hotel room with a knife. We were down in the Cayman Islands at the time. When I stood up, the knife flew out of his hand and scared him so bad that he ran out of the room. Thurman was sitting there and asked, How did I do that? I told him I didn't do it, that the beings with me must have knocked the knife away. So this was just another example of the Galactic Secret Service. Here's another example of Thurman not wanting to listen. I told him that we were not going to get on this particular airplane. We were in Florida, I think at Miami Airport. And he said, no, we're getting on this airplane. We argued back and forth, and as I refused to get on the flight, the argument, well, it just became a waste of breath and energy, because the plane got grounded. The pilots said that they, they had never seen anything like it. There was fog inside the windshield. All these strange things that happened were actually about training Thurman and, stop, and stopping that dark lord crap that he was carrying with him. He was into power and control. You'll do what I tell you to do or else. Well, all that stopped. I was being monitored the whole time I was with Thurman because he could be dangerous with his you'll do what I tell you routine. He started calming down after several of these demonstrations, but it took some extreme examples to get him to pay attention. These demonstrations were so prolific that Thurman actually stopped drinking. He stayed sober the rest of the time that I was with him. December 29, 1984, at 5.05 p.m., Gloretta, New Mexico. Shirley McLean. Now, where do I begin? Our meeting, I guess, was destined to be. I had known that my path would not only cross Shirley's, but that somehow we would have many experiences together. For years, I'd been flashing about her, but nothing of any real significance. I'd smile with my brain when I'd read about her in the tabloids, but that was about it. My real knowing about Shirley started in Las Vegas, Nevada, somewhere between 1977 and 78. I'd pick up an article about her, and as I read it, I knew that we would come together with a meeting of the minds. Little did I know at the time that in the near future, it would be related to something that I would call War of the Minds. At that point of my life, I was living and working in Las Vegas. What a town. Whatever you wanted or even think that you wanted, you could have in ten minutes. The town truly never shuts down. After spending five years there, I learned that the highest of souls and the lowest of souls were gathered there. Huge E.T. experiment. It seemed to be a place where great transmutations would happen, that accelerated evolution would take place in Las Vegas. As I already mentioned, in the summer of 75, I was one of seven people who had an extraterrestrial experience out at Lake Mead. We watched aliens walk on the water. None of us were ever the same after that event. Our lives really changed drastically. I'd already had several 
ET contacts, but I can look back and see that this particular encounter seemed to set my feet on a path of great evolutionary experiences. As I've mentioned earlier, I was conducting counseling work by using astrological charts. I utilized my psychic abilities more than the science of astrology, which always kind of made other astrologers about half nuts. At that time, I knew about my double pineal, but on the other hand, I really didn't know or would comprehend to know for many years later what that really meant about how the ETs would come and go from my double pineal. The Lake Mead experience accelerated my abilities. It seemed that my sight, hearing, and all of my other senses were just amped up about a thousandfold. People started coming to counseling at an, an accelerated rate. I didn't know it then, but I had an ET that came and worked with me every single day. Their work was handled on the QT because it wasn't time for them to make their everyday physical appearance in my life. I suppose that I was just too green or too emotionally crippled from all of my romantic adventures to handle extraterrestrials on an everyday basis. I suppose that I had to hang on to suffering a little while longer before they made their entrance to me. There is one real valuable lesson that I learned from my space brothers and sisters, and that is, they know what is happening to us, and they are matching it with cosmic timing the whole time that we're doing our little earth dance. You know, people would come to me by word of mouth, and I was always booked. For three years, I had no set fee, only donations. But after I started working with more cosmic laws, I discovered that the flow of exchange is necessary to do the best job and also be free of karmic ties. I lived with the flow of abundance, but nothing that you would call extravagant. When I wanted to be extravagant, I would just visit some movie star friend or people with a lot of Leo planets. Money for the sake of money has never really meant much to me. I suppose that is why I have so little respect for it. I observed in my counseling sessions what part money played in people's lives, and I finally figured out that people played the money game because at the end of their life, they could count all their toys, and whoever had the most toys upon death won the game. I suppose that reasoning warped my sense of values and led me to believe that money can truly burn a hole in your pocket. And besides, whoever saw a hearse with a luggage rack on top? Okay, so... Yet when I left my practice in Vegas, I left with a man who was financially secure from his father's oil trust fund. And by this time, I was physically ill, mentally exhausted, and spiritually drained. I had locked into heavy judgment, could see people's potential, tried to help them, only see some of them crash and burn. Truly burn. Judgment is really, I think, what made me sick. I can see that now. I had gained an enormous amount of weight, had polyps in my colon, and I couldn't go to the bathroom without an enema. So, for yeah, for three years. So when Thurman came into my life, I was I was ready to leave that life and pick up a new one. I had a celestial visitation from a female energy that asked me if I would help on an assignment of transmitting a person to a higher level of being, and I said yes before I really had time to evaluate. Well, what I what I have to do with in such a an assignment. The first three years were very difficult and trying to my soul. 
Thurman knew how to drink and act ugly and play with people's minds and emotions. He knew nothing of metaphysics or cosmic laws. This was not an easy assignment, especially with a mouth like mine, which was, you know, my mouth gets like a torn pocket. I would go to my ET female friend and beg to be relieved of this assignment, and she'd be sitting in my other pineal talking to me as one would speak on the telephone, and I would yell, I quit, and she'd say, not now. She actually would sit on my head and would literally paralyze my tongue when she knew that I had taken all the abuse I could stand. If she hadn't been there 24 hours a day, I would have left in the first month of torture. She kept telling me that Thurman was a very high being who had lost his way through many incarnations in flesh. She wanted me to bring him to his awareness so that he would remember who he was and why he was here. If I could turn his life around and put his feet firmly on the path, then I too would benefit through exalted, multi-level experiences. She reminded me of my past history of giving up on projects just because I got bored or just couldn't see things to completion. She told me that if I could stay to the end of this project, the reason that I mention about all this, about Thurman, is because it's important to understand our relationship and our work and our pledge to the welfare of the planet. There have been many people come and go out of our lives in these last six years who have tried to get us apart for one reason or another, but they never seem to grasp or understand galactic packs that are made with millions of souls hanging in the balance. Cosmic agreements are very serious, for they affect not only a root race that is vanishing, but a new root race that is now being prepared to come to Earth for the new age of reason. This all relates to other regions of space that are of a higher cosmic order. So needless to say that family, friends, etc. could have so little an influence upon such a cosmic project. Now as to the meeting of Shirley MacLaine. I must start with the months previous to our official meeting because it shows the integral workings of invisible forces that are at work that are trying to bring us together, while another force is trying to keep us apart. On November 1st, 1981, I was informed by galactic sources that a great wave of feminine energy was being brought to the planet. This energy would hit the cells residing in female bodies and strengthen it, thus causing from some women to go overboard and lose their balance. Others would take the same energy and move through it and make it part of their lives forever. Not all women reacted the same to this energy. I remember feeling extremely charged and how difficult it was to close my eyes to even sleep that whole month of November. I can recall pulling my energies back from Thurman and from most male energies at the time. There was a few days that I'd awake thinking that men in general were the enemy. What was really happening was an alignment of energies in my own physical body that was to bring my male and female energies to some sort of balance. I think that this energy gets periodically active at different times of the year and cause some women to go just right off. With menopause, the pill, 
hormone imbalances, pollution, and sonic disturbance. Who can really pinpoint these times unless one is in total balance and can home right in on these restructuring days for women? No medical person would ever step forward and agree with me as to what is happening to the women of the world. They'd be laughed at, right? I was told that I was to send quartz crystals to Cairo, Egypt, and they would go inside the pyramid to be charged with energies that would match this feminine energy shot that was being beamed to the planet. I was unable to go, but I sent Elizabeth Ellis, a beautiful star maiden, to be responsible for the crystals. From the moment I took the assignment about those crystals until the assignment was over, I was under heavy bombardment from dark forces not wanting these crystals to be charged with this feminine energy. One hassle after another occurred from November 1 to November 9, the day the crystals got on their way to Cairo. After I delivered the crystals to Elizabeth at the airport, I flew to Catalina Island where we had rented a house for three months. I remembered crying most of the way. I was tired. I was suffering from psychic attack, frequency discernment, and physically and mentally exhausted. I, I was a wreck for three days, but after a brief rest, I continued my work doing transmissions from the spacecraft called the Star of Bethlehem, or some refer to it as TX-11. This is the same ship that helped during the time of the Essenes in Israel and was visible the night that Jesus was born of earthly flesh upon the planet. This same entity comes and goes now off the ship, but he goes now by another name, and some people know him as Sananda, and others give him other names for different times. And TX-11 is the new term given for the new age of reason. I wrote transmissions during the day, and at night I'd go to Cairo, Egypt, to check on the crystals that I had sent with Elizabeth. And it was during that period of time that I was trained by crystal masters as to what should be done with crystal power on the planet. You know, you just have to remember what happened with Atlantis to get a grip on what that responsibility level must have looked like. The great responsibility rests with anyone in charge of or in custody of certain kinds of crystals. Because of past misuse of them, entire civilizations have disappeared. I realized the seriousness of this crystal work and kept myself in balance for this special time in Cairo. So every night at 10 p.m., a spacecraft would bring me up, take me to crystal school in Egypt. Now, it was during this period of time that I started flashing and thinking about Shirley MacLaine. Her face would come and go in my mind, and I'd read something about her in the trade papers or see an old movie of hers on TV. I was stimulated to walk down the, to the corner payphone and call an old girlfriend of mine, Jeanette Browning. I hadn't even spoken to her in three years, yet I remembered that she'd been among the ones who sat around the round table in my kitchen while ETs had been coming and going throughout the house, so I wondered who she really was. Anyway, I called and invited her over to see me at Catalina. She told me that she was working for Shirley MacLaine as her secretary. Actually, Jeanette was Shirley's assistant while Shirley only played in Vegas. She never really went anywhere else with her. I first met Jeanette when she was dating and working for Robert Goulet. 
She had been in love with him, and she had loved to be around movie stars. She didn't want to be a star. She just wanted to walk in their shadows, so to speak. After I hung up the phone, a series of things started to happen. I felt this buzzing in my head. Time was distorted, and I was so hungry I could eat until tomorrow. I realized that the activation of the feminine energy was being activated within me, and that Shirley's energy some way, somehow, extended to me at Catalina, but I couldn't figure it out. I just shrugged it off as something weird and returned home to continue the transmissions. I had asked Jeanette to come over in about a week, as then I'd be through with my nightly visits to Cairo. But you know what? The very next day, Jeanette showed up unexpectedly with a very handsome man who later I first named the first lieutenant of the Prince of Darkness. When he walked through the door, my hair stood on end. He was gracious, friendly, but I could detect a frequency operating that really spelled out who he was. I couldn't tell Jeanette as she was so naive in such matters. You know, she had the discernment of a worker ant, so I had to keep to myself what I was picking up on her friend. They invited me to dinner that night, and it was at dinner that I started really being tested. But whose forces? Well, just figure it out. It was not important to mention all the tests. The important thing is that I passed it. Because at 9.30, I promptly stood up, excused myself, and said that I had an important meeting that I had to attend. One of them wouldn't let me alone and kept insisting I stay and return with him to his boat. I kept walking and told him that I had an important meeting in Cairo. He said, Egypt? I said, yes. He called me crazy or some insane term and let me be. What this yo-yo didn't understand was that I really would be in Cairo, Egypt by 10.05 and wouldn't return until 7 a.m. the next morning. I felt that all that had happened had been designed for me to see where my weaknesses and strengths were at that time. The thing that now stands out in my mind is that the date of this was Pleiadian lineup, November 17th, 18th, and 19th, the galactic days of activation that I have come to know so well. So no wonder I was being tested by the first lieutenant of the Prince of Darkness. By the next morning, I knew that I had passed the test. Yet, I knew that there would be other tests to see if I would remain true to the quest. A week later, around Thanksgiving, Thurman came to Los Angeles, and we got a room at the Hacienda Hotel, and it was close to the Los Angeles airport, and Elizabeth would be arriving back with the crystals at 2.30 a.m., the day before Thanksgiving, 1981. We picked her up, got the crystals, went back to the hotel. I wanted to, to just stay up and, watch, and catch the helicopter back to Catalina so that we could have Thanksgiving at our house there. Besides, on Channel 5, they were having a Twilight Zone day from 9 a.m. to 6 p.m. reruns of Rod Serling's stories. I really wanted to see that. Thurman said that he felt that we should stay at the hotel and not take the helicopter that morning. I grumbled, but agreed. At 8.30 a.m. that very morning, that helicopter crashed on its way to Catalina, dumping its passengers in the ocean. No one was killed. So, Thurman was right about that one. When I look back at when things started going wacky, it was when Elizabeth brought the crystals back to me from Cairo. 
it seemed that there were forces that followed those crystals or forces just hovering and monitoring what was going to happen with the crystals. All I know was that some kind of war had been declared on me personally and it was because of my agreement to take responsibility for the crystals and their subsequent energies. When we returned to Catalina, I felt a feeling of doom approaching. I couldn't put my finger on it, but I felt like crying five or six times a day. This went on for three days. <laughs> on November 29th, my galactic female friend who had been living in my other pineal decided to bid me farewell. She had been my constant companion for three years. What was I ever going to do without her? She explained to me that she had to leave my energy field and that I needed a long rest. She had done what she could with Thurman through me, but she also knew that if she stayed, my nerves would burn out and I could possibly die. This news shook me to my foundation. What was I ever going to do without her? She'd become a great part of me. Her records were now part of my records and vice versa. We'd made such a good team that the thought of such a drastic separation was devastating to say the least. So, on November 29th, she explained that she'd be leaving in a couple of days. After the heavy transmission, she suggested that we take a walk to town. About 4 p.m., we walked down to get a newspaper. Everyone was talking about the death of Natalie Wood, the actress. I was stunned, numb. I couldn't believe my ears. My solar plexus started jumping. Tears came to my eyes. The news of her drowning was so shocking that I couldn't get my bearings. We walked back to the house, and I started washing dishes. I had to do something. I was crying and washing, crying and washing. I knew that something had gone wrong, for she was slated to be one of the beings with walk-in energies to come forth and help the planet by stepping forward and helping the people. I'd been told in one of the transmissions that I was supposed to meet her, and that we had a lot of work to do together. I was from the same genetic cloning operation, and she was a part of me. I was devastated. What had gone wrong? I looked out my window and asked, Is it time for me to leave the mm -hmm. island? Mm -hmm. At that moment, a big, I mean big iced tea glass flew off the draining board, landed on the floor without breaking. In fact, it jumped off, and just before it got to the floor, it slowed down so it wouldn't break. I knew this was a signal to get the hell out of Dodge. Remember Dodge City and the train? Well, this is that moment. So the next morning, we started making plans to shut up the house. I had started having pains in my bladder. My nerves seemed shot, and in two hours, I was bleeding. I felt the sharp pain of a kidney stone. And I knew that feeling from three years before. Yeah. I just now remembered that my galactic female friend arrived one month after my kidney stone operation in Florida. And now that she had left, I was experiencing another kidney stone. I wonder what this connection was. I had one more brief transmission about Natalie explaining that she had lost her balance of reasoning and was an easy target for the dark forces that were monitoring her. 
I suffered emotional pain right along with her friends and family. My suffering was from another point of view. I knew who she really was, her potential, and what her assignment would be in helping to awaken the people. She would have gone down in earth history as a woman who helped transmute millions out of spiritual darkness. She was a star maiden of galactic origin. She was a star from which she came. And now she'd only be a memory of a famous movie star of Earth. What a loss. I suppose that this was my first real jolt about discernment. I knew that she had lost hers completely. A few years later I discovered that there are certain types of people who have a genetic code of activation and that they have similar characteristics like Natalie Wood, Elizabeth Taylor, Joan Collins, Suzanne Plachette, Elizabeth Ashley, etc. all have this same characteristic and some have corresponding missions. And because of my coding, I did belong to this group. There are others connected to this mission who are not famous, but that doesn't lessen their importance on the planet. I realized that I had to get off of Catalina Island and fast. I felt energies that were disruptive and alarming and that were entering my house. This was nuts. So, there was only one seat on the on the seaplane, so Thurman decided to take the boat. Every time I took a step, I was in pain. I waved to him as he went off on the boat. I called Gina Bellado, another star maiden trying to be an actress, movie star, to come pick me up, but she had a, an important meeting with an agent who hopefully would make her famous. I couldn't believe where her priorities were at that moment. Didn't she understand that I was bleeding and that I could be dying? She did, though, find someone else to pick me up. The whole episode was shocking. I was watching Thurman on the boat, but something made me turn around and see my luggage on top of a shuttle bus, and I yelled, Where are you taking my luggage? And it seemed that the seaplane had been canceled at the last moment, and everyone had boarded the bus to ride 20 miles up to the landing strip. I climbed aboard, took my seat, and decided that I'd use my mind to stop the kidney stone from moving. I succeeded and turned around and looked out the window. I saw the face of another star maiden friend of mine, Chris Griscom. I remembered her telling me how she had given birth to her baby alone, but with no help. And at that moment, I understood her dilemma of pain and being alone. I knew that if she could do it, that I could do it. And sure enough, I stopped that stone right in its track and also the pain. It seemed to take forever to get to the landing strip. When we got there, the pilot, who looked like a replica of Alan Ladd with a cigar in his mouth, told me that he had had the, the seaplane on the runway when a voice spoke to him and said, Turn the plane around. It will never make it back. So with that, he turned the plane around and picked up the, the land plane. After he said that, I climbed on board, looked out the window, and then I saw Shirley MacLaine's face. It was then that I heard my inner voice say, Oh, Shirley, Natalie's gone. It's now up to you to help the people on the planet. Well, where did that come from? I couldn't imagine why I would say such a thing. I hadn't even met Shirley yet, but something deep inside of me seemed to know. I did not know it then, but Warren Beatty, Shirley's brother, had been deeply in love with Natalie and was at that moment in deep sorrow and depression because of her untimely death. I was so relieved to arrive safely at Long Beach Airport. 
Thurman and I drove to LAX and flew directly to Las Vegas, where my best friend, Belva Bloomer, lived. She, as of this writing of this, wrote fan letters for Shirley up at Cripple Creek, Colorado. I knew in my heart that if I could get to my friend with her healing abilities, that we together could bust the kidney stones, and then I'd pass them. We made quite a team. She would hold the beam, and then I would shoot, and then try to pass them in the urine. And this went on for five or six days. I have never experienced so much pain. My nerves were raw. Natalie was dead. And where was my galactic female buddy? Gone. My personal world had collapsed, and I couldn't get a handle on what was really happening to me. Jeanette Browning, Shirley's secretary, asked me to come to her house to get well. I wasn't in a position to make many sound decisions, so I said yes. I stayed there from December 4th to the 16th. Jeanette had transiting Neptune on her natal sun, which kept her in the twilight zone most of the time. She couldn't turn around that she wasn't making some unwise decision, and looking back on those days, I felt kind of sorry for her. But later, I discovered that enemies come in many disguises. On one particular day, Thurman decided to show up and give me a gigantic healing with two giant crystals. Jeanette came home early to help. She had had several drinks and was sitting at my feet holding the point when the doorbell rang. It was flowers from the one she had been with in Catalina, the first lieutenant of the Prince of Darkness. She set them on the table downstairs, which is directly under my bed. There was an energy exchange set up, but I don't know to this day how to describe it with any clarity. But the energies coming from the crystals had aligned them with something that was killing me and not making me well. I knew it in the minute it happened, but I was too sick to know what to do. But I never will forget it. Never. I also realized that Thurman was playing the role of half-friend, half-villain. He should have been on top of the situation, but his ego got in the way and out of control, and he had absolutely no discernment. I knew that the energy trying to kill me also knew what my mission was to perform and simply did not want me to succeed. With naive Jeanette and then Thurman play, playing acting his new role as God, I knew that I had to get out of there and fast. I wasn't thinking too else, but at least I knew that if I stayed that I might die. I know this sounds like I was filled with fear, but I was dealing with energies that were not of this world, and the test was too much to take because of my physical problem. Also around that time, I remember calling Chris Griscom. Thurman flew her there uh, to Las Vegas. She worked on me, and I remembered uh, her bringing some amethyst crystals and putting it in a glass of water, putting it in the sun, and all the purple left the amethyst. I drank the water, and somehow I was able to get my next uh, energy up to where I could literally drive out of Las Vegas. I had Thurman drive me to Flagstaff, Arizona, where we had another house. I had 104 temperature for several days, and during my fever, I saw other dimensions and had many unusual visions. I encountered a being that reminded me, well, of the Ayatollah Khomeini, and I think it was him because I actually saw him later when he did leave the planet. It was the same guy, and others that looked like his assistants. 
dark star lords were beaming energy constantly at me. I couldn't believe it. During this period of time, I talked to Jeanette, who wanted me to talk to Cha-Cha. And he'd been with Shirley for two or three years, training her in metaphysical matters. She called him David in her Out of the Book uh, series, which is really a composite of two or three others who came to help her. And at that time, Cha-Cha was living off of Shirley's charity. So he was quite protective of any new people who would come into her life. He was doing drugs, drinking quite heavily. He'd had experiences with extraterrestrial beings, and he just couldn't function with ordinary humans. He had been with a female cosmonaut. She activated into him a lot of advanced knowledge, made love with him, and it spoiled him so much that he could never be satisfied by an earth woman. He was a casualty of great spiritual indigestion. But now that I look back on it, I'm sure there was a runner, also from Ramtha, that was slowly but surely driving him away from Shirley and out of her life. Ramtha, well, this was his M.O. I told Cha-Cha that I had a screenplay to show him, hoping he would read it, and if he liked it, pass it on to Shirley. I had written a screenplay called It's Happened Again, the story of two souls out of body. They fall in love, then reincarnate back into body with the help from a spacecraft, a script that I heard from beginning to end in 45 minutes at Mount Charleston, Nevada, years before. In between training Thurman and Cosmic Laws and doing transmission, I developed the screenplay over a two and a half year period. I had a lot of help by celestial beings creating the screenplay, so I just assumed that everyone would welcome it with open arms. Boy, was I wrong about that. I was rejected from every corner of the film industry. So I felt it'd be proper to put it in Shirley's path in case she saw the potential of its birth on the screen. All this time, as Cha-Cha was reading the screenplay, I had dark star lords hovering over my bed. Was this some old past karmic debt playing out? Who were these energies trying to kill me? And if they kill me, then what? Then I didn't know or understand, but as the years passed with many more experiences and similar type of energies, I know that they were engaged by higher forces to test me, not to kill me. I knew I had a mission, and I knew that nothing, absolutely nothing, was going to stop me. Well, Lavendar, thank you so much for sharing that part of your story. And if anyone has not heard Crack Between the Worlds, which is our featured episode, you can um, pick up where the story has left off. And I do want to remind you that we'll be back three weeks from tonight because we're going to Arkansas for our Starseed Quest. So until then, remember to hold gratitude in your heart and give compassion instead of judgment. Until next time, good night, everyone. You've been listening to Starseed Radio Academy. Visit our website at www.starseedhotline.com. 